0: You're listening to Right Between the Eyes, the Bellingen Readers and Writers Festival podcast, where each episode we sit down with an outstanding festival guest to talk about their life, their work, the deepest, darkest secrets they'd intended to take to the grave. It's all on the table. You'll also hear a special musical feature from one of the region's most exciting performers. And if that wasn't enough, we cap things off with an author reading from yet another standout festival guest. It's a cavalcade of words for your ears all on Right Between the Eyes. Today we're joined by none other than veteran journalist Kerry O'Brien. Having interviewed some of the most significant and controversial figures in modern history, including Nelson Mandela, Mikhail Gorbachev, Margaret Thatcher and countless others, Over the course of decades, O'Brien has built a reputation as one of Australia's most respected and reliable voices. In this conversation, which occurred shortly after the death of US Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we talk of the seismic cultural and political shifts currently underway in the United States and how vulnerable Australia is itself of following this very troubling path. O'Brien also shares his thoughts on the evolution of Australia's political parties over the decades and why we should be concerned about the quality of journalism in this era of infotainment, social media algorithms and fake news. Kerry O'Brien, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us on Right Between the Eyes.
1: No worries, Adam. I'm pleased to be here.
0: Uh, I suspect there may well be quite a bit of time travel in this conversation beginning with a, a young Kerry O'Brien who wasn't really sure what he wanted to do with his life and came to journalism almost by chance. Uh, in your memoir you might have being assigned to listening into the police radio for stories which was a thrill because it was technically illegal but you also would have had this opportunity to hear a lot of dramatic things as they occurred. And today a strong and rather consistent element of journalism is sensationalism. I mean, that's nothing, nothing new and it's not everywhere in journalism. But when I read of, of young Kerry there listening to stories of the police and ambulance, of, of um, fire brigade rescues, it made me wonder if a dose of excitement with our news is an intrinsic element of journalism. Are we naturally geared towards the truth needing to have a bit of a flourish?
1: Oh, I, look, um, particularly when I was younger and when this was a whole new experience to me, uh, it was absolutely exciting, uh, particularly compared to the life I'd been leading professionally. I'd, been, I'd sort of meandered out of school. I hadn't gone straight to university. I'd gone into the public service where I was doing exciting things like arranging furniture removals for uh, <laughs> public servants who were moving from one state to another. So going into the newsroom at Channel 9 in those very early days of television in Queensland, uh, it was a totally different world to me. It was a world of adrenaline. It was a world of collegiality. A big story broke. Everybody leapt in and, uh, and helped everybody else. Um, and uh, and it, was, it, it was the growing sense of, uh, of understanding that even if you felt you'd hit a bit of a flat spot, there was always something potentially exciting just around the corner. And uh, that's been true for for my 50 years in journalism. You, you know, there's always a good story not that far away. Mm. So, so in terms of um, uh, needing excitement or needing to give the stories a flourish, uh, uh, I, I don't think any journalist wants to actively try and make his story sound uninteresting or unexciting. But um, so, so you you do want to. Get the best out of a story in the telling, but by the same token, any responsible journalist um, understands the limitations of how far you can take a story before you step over into your responsibility or a, an unacceptable beat up.
0: Mm, it's an interesting line wherever it are, wherever it exists. It's interesting as well, I suppose, looking at it from the expectations of audiences now, because for for many years I was based down in Sydney and carved out a little spot doing interview features a couple of times a week and I, I loved the work I, mean, I didn't love the transcribing but the rest of it was great but after a couple of years a new editor came on board one magazine and a different company bought out another and I started to see this similar feedback where, which all amounted to basically oh yes that was a great piece but why don't we try it as a listicle and all of a sudden, there was this push for stories to all become dot points. And I see now a lot of, a lot of journals that I quite admire and respect, um, like The Atlantic I even saw this morning, put little notices on their article links that this is a three-minute read or this is a 10-minute read. So yeah. what's going on, Kerry? Why do readers need to be reassured that they're not going to have to exert themselves anymore?
1: Because I think the whole industry of journalism has become very defensive. And, uh, and newspapers need circulation. Television needs bums on seats. And, uh, and those, uh, those potential consumers of news have now become much more thinly spread. Uh, there are many different sources of news, some of them reputable and many of them not. Mm. Um, people can sometimes rely on Facebook to deliver their news for them. And, and the algorithms behind their Facebook um, will be deciding for them what news they want to see or hear or read. Uh, so it is a very different world today, and it's one where even really top uh, journalism, like uh, that reflected in Four Corners, for instance. Um, you know, Four Corners is is firing as well as it ever has in terms of the relevance of its stories and the impact of its stories. It's, uh, it's almost become commonplace now for Four Corners programs to force royal commissions, mm. and yet, and yet, it's a weekly struggle on four corners to get a viable programme, and uh, and that is uh, that is true to one degree or another, right across the spectrum, mm. and it's why you see so much more infotainment, so-called, on commercial television. I think than ever before, television's always been a superficial medium. You've always got to struggle. To, to get some depth into your stories for television. It's, a, it's an exciting medium, but it's also a very frustrating medium. And, and in commercial television these days, um, the, I, I believe the quality of the journalism has suffered mightily. Mm. And I'd hate to think that the ABC would find itself forced to go down that road, but I sometimes see a little bit of that reflected in the storytelling.
0: Mm. I w- was reading of your, I suppose, your, your pride... Uh, in helping to, and I quote, share the history of our times in a meaningful way, end quote. And I, I wanted to touch on what you refer to as your big hitters in the memoir, the, the the major interviews of your career, Your Margaret Thatcher, Nelson Mandela, who you describe as the greatest leader of your lifetime, uh, Gorbachev. I imagine that working out what you're going to ask them is perhaps as difficult as how you're going to ask it but for each of the, each of those figures i just mentioned these people who have been instrumental in shaping contemporary history there must be quite a a weight of responsibility you felt personally in getting that moment right
1: well Adam, I think that the truth is that um, that I've taken the same approach to everything I've done, which is to try and extract the maximum I can from it. And, uh, and to the extent I've been successful, maybe that's been the key or part of the key. I don't know. But uh, whether I was preparing uh, my interview for Barack Obama or Nelson Mandela or Thatcher or Gorbachev or Colin Powell or whoever um, – uh, really, my focus was on maximising the amount of material available for me to contemplate, uh, then to work out what I considered to be the most important themes and the most important questions within those themes. And and I suppose if I ever sweat uh, a question in a in an interview, it's it's almost invariably the opening question hmm. because if you can if you can get the opening question right, then the logic will direct the flow of all the other questions that follow. Hmm. And, uh, and, and even though you'll always leave room open and the scope open and you'll always be alert um, for, for uh, an issue to be thrown up or a comment to be thrown up by the interviewee that deserves time on its own uh, and you will pursue those moments when they come, Nonetheless, uh, in, in all of those big interviews and, and the interviews I used to do for late line in the early years and so on, um, uh, invariably I would come back to the, to the logic, come back to the rationale for the interview. So the, the other thing about it is that if you're doing an interview with Barack Obama, uh, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've never had such a sense of outside control Mm. Uh, than I've had in White House interviews, and I've done a, a, a. Obama is the only president I've interviewed, but I've interviewed I've interviewed a vice president and various uh, defense secretaries and secretaries of state and so on. Within the the ages of that kind of that sort of um, that that tight um, White House or, or presidential administration structure and discipline, and and so. Almost invariably, with the interviews I did, whether it was Condoleezza Rice or Dan Quayle or Obama himself, um, they would start by telling you, "You, you, you know." I'd start asking for the world, and they'd give me, they'd give me a dot point on the map. You know, I'd want half an hour, and they'd say, "Well, you'll be lucky to get ten minutes." And I'd say twenty, and they'd say twelve, and I'd say fifteen, and they'd say, "Well, maybe." Hmm. And uh, and then I and almost every time. You know, it became it became a given that by the time the person I was interviewing walked into the room, the interview time had shrunk to seven or eight, and I would then go through a, a process of ignoring the clock and just maximising the time I could get with with that person. I can remember with Condi Rice when she was uh, George Bush Jr.'s Secretary of State, and uh, I think that was in the end it was it was supposed to be fifteen, and in the end it had become nine. And uh, when I got to 16 or 17 minutes, uh, Condy Rice's aide started walking in, and I looked up at Rice, uh, and uh, and as she was talking, and she caught my eye and looked over at the glanced over at the person, and then under the camera, um under the camera frame, she waved him away with a hand. Um, but but I've had them. i mean, with the Thatcher interview. Uh, her press secretary who had a reputation as something of a bully amongst British journalists, um, uh, he walked in and uh, essentially gave her the excuse to stop the interview because neither of them liked where it was going. Mm. Uh, With Obama, um, the 15 minutes that they eventually reluctantly half-promised, by the time we arrived in the White House to set up, we were told it was down to 12 minutes and by the time he was walking down the corridor and about to start, they said you can only have nine. Mm. And, uh, And I'd had a I'd had a strategy worked out with uh, Michael Brissenden, who at that stage was our correspondent in Washington, and he was with me in the room. Um, I directed the press secretary over to a corner of the room, quite a large room, so a fair way away from us, with with the cam- one of the cameramen, and uh, and I told the aide that if he just uh, gave Bruce the uh, gave uh, Michael the uh, uh, the countdown, Michael would pass the signals on to me, which I then dutifully ignored. And we got twenty-two minutes out of it, <laughs> uh, and and Obama walked out of it. You know, he joked afterwards. Uh, we chatted for a few minutes afterwards. He walked out of the room happy, and the aide was left there as a sort of dangling heap of nerves. Mm-hmm. Well, the the truth is that almost invariably, when you had those kinds of tensions, the tensions were created by the staff rather than the person that you were interviewing. It was true. It was often true for press secretaries in Australia, and I found it true elsewhere as well. But they, they, it was the aides who were nervous about putting their foot in it, getting a chop in the neck, you know? Mm-hmm. And so out of their own fear, they would very defensively try and curtail what I was trying to do and just get in the way.
2: I suppose
0: talking to that that first question, perhaps setting setting a scene or setting a tone, part of the, the memoir is you... You mentioned quite a brief observation about interviewing Billy Crystal... Um, and you you note that your interview there was, it was perfectly fine and perfectly funny, but there was nothing new. And you wrote, Maybe he was jet-lagged and I simply failed to find the key that took him out of his routine. I hadn't found the question that piqued his interest and cracked his shell. End quote. Looking back, not at the Billy Crystal interview per se, but more broadly, how often did you feel going into an interview that you had that question in the bag. You'd you'd done your homework and this was going to be the question that made all the walls come tumbling down.
1: Oh, look, I I don't know that uh, that was... Particularly with politicians, that was never the case. I mean, I I might have come up with a question that I knew was going to test them or was going to put them on notice of what was to follow. Um, And I can remember uh, framing a question for, for Kevin Rudd uh, in t- uh, around March, April of 2010 when uh, it wasn't so much that his back was to the wall on climate change, but he was in strife. His policy was in strife. Abbott was starting to hit his stride as opposition leader in a, in a very kind of obstructive way on climate change, talking in short slogans and, uh, and basically just, uh, you know, just objecting to every piece of government policy. And uh, and and Rudd was uh, starting to make mistakes, and uh, the brand was being damaged, and his popularity had started to slide quite significantly. And a number of those things could have been landed at Rudd's own feet. So my opening question uh, was really about about why and how he'd managed to do so much damage to to brand Rudd. And uh, and so that wasn't a killer question. It wasn't a question. That was going to cause him to fall on a gibbering heap. It wasn't a question that was going to expose him in some way, but it was a question that potentially led down a very uncomfortable route for him. And uh, and instead of directing, directly answering that question, he started to talk about instead of instead of acknowledging that I was talking about the Rudd brand, not the government, but the brand of Kevin Rudd, which had driven him to be at that at at. A, at not that long before, the most popular prime minister in Australian history, according to the polling. Mm. And, uh, and his answer, st- he started talking about the government. So I interrupted him and said, no, I'm talking about Brand Rudd." And the interview that followed, I thought, was quite a reasonable interview, and it was not a good interview for him. But he could have, you know, with a different approach and a different answer, he might have defused it right at the beginning and gone off on his own tangent. Mm. But because he chose to respond defensively, he opened himself up. Mm. So, so the, the short answer is, there's no guarantee when you ask a question that it's going to somehow um, um, uh, put a put a politician in a corner. I mean, I was I wasn't particularly interested in laying little traps for people or looking for gotcha moments. I was mm. always mostly interested in extracting the information that I believe the public wanted to hear, mm. and uh, and the the kind of the the dynamics and the dramatic elements of interviews tended to build up where politicians resisted this proposition that maybe that they were there to answer questions on behalf of um, the public, not just some journal in a studio. Hmm.
0: To, to keep talking of, of politics, we're drawing closer and closer now to the US elections, where Trump has already floated the notion of a a redo of his first term. And we've seen Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passed away and Trump is rushing to replace her on the Supreme Court and may well succeed. Uh, And even in his speech to the UN General Assembly just earlier this morning, uh, the president attacked China over the pandemic while we've reached this grim milestone of at least 200,000 who've died from the coronavirus in the United States. And towards the, the end of your memoir... You write of Australia's own political machine a wonderful quote, which reads Watching the slow, steady decline of a once strong democracy close up can be a wearing thing. The framework is intact, but the ongoing loss of public faith is a matter of deep concern. There's nothing guaranteed about a democracy, no matter how old. End quote. Uh, suffice to say, is the US moving towards the end of democracy?
1: Big, uh, big question. Big question. Um, uh, it's certainly, it's certainly moving uh, down the hill, and has been for a long time. I mean, America has been held up as this great shining example of democracy, and yet the truth is, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's known corruption deep within its system, going back at least a hundred years. You know, there is this thing called Tammany Hall politics, which was the kind of uh, corrupt. Uh, political system that was applied to the Democratic Party machine in in cities like New York, going back into the late 1900s. Um, so, so it's never been a perfect system by any means, and um, uh, you've had so many uh, moments that have shone a light on those imperfections uh, post-war. For instance, when uh, Richard Nixon was impeached over Watergate, when when he was actually Giving the nod uh, to to individuals acting on behalf of the Republican Party and essentially on his behalf, actually conducting illegal break-ins to Democratic Party headquarters to try and, to try and get inf- information that might compromise his opponents at the next presidential election. Um, um, J. Edgar Hoover was a deeply imperfect individual uh, who also. Um, um, uh, was responsible for elements of corruption uh, In the way he conducted his office So there were two men in the time of Nixon There was Nixon and there was J. Edgar Hoover Two corrupt individuals who were right at the heart of American democracy um, So there's nothing new um, About about this sense of a corrupt process today Or a declining democracy the, I think it's been a slow drip for a long time But that drip is now gathering pace and I'm using the word. I'm not necessarily using the word to describe Donald Trump, but it's apt. Um, I mean, where, where where Trump is not a drip is that he uh, he is first, last, and always about retaining power. And there's barely been an act, I suspect, since he became president that hasn't been a part of his plan to retain the presidency into a presidency into a second four years. Mm. Uh, the the, the the corruption is absolutely at the heart of his administration. Uh, there has been no president like him. Uh, he gives the very strong impression that there is almost nothing he would not do to hold and keep office. He, uh, he displays no ethical basis uh, for being there. Uh, I, I think it is deeply depressing what we see in the United States today. And uh when you think back to the civil rights movement when I was a very young journalist and found people like like um like Martin Luther King so inspirational, uh, and so you saw all of those activities uh, in the sixties in the civil rights movement that led to genuine reforms and that that um, that actually did put a stop to a segregation uh, official segregation in the states of the south. Um, and now you you look behind the reasons why you see those Black Lives Matter marches and you see that racism is still deeply embedded in American society. Uh, so you've got to wonder about the future of the United States as China rises. I mean, China is a totally authoritarian society. Uh, I'm just reading again this morning about how um, on top of the Muslim minorities' being persecuted the way they have been by official Chinese policy. I'm now reading about how the Tibetans are being forced into a kind of slave labor Mm. as a way of essentially um, um, distancing them as much as possible from their religion and from their culture. So uh, China is a different kettle of fish. Uh, America has always been held up as the great example to us, and the truth is, we are walking down the American road now. We're some way behind where they are in that, in that road downhill, that downhill road with democracy at the peak. We're some way behind them, but we're certainly heading in the same direction. I've got no doubt about that.
0: That's interesting because I mean, you spoke just recently on Q and A that the opportunities that existed for your own generation will likely not exist for a younger generation, or if they do exist, they're going to be much harder to attain. And it seems I agree that when you look at the US, I, I, I do find it quite depressing because it was always such a, uh, a symbol uh, when I was a young man. But it seems a lot of Trump's popularity has been born of people exasperated by circumstances that they see being beyond their control and that they have a way of life that's starting to unravel. And there's this person at a podium who keeps telling them that it's not their fault and that they should be angry at these other people instead. So they're all very disillusioned. How close do you think that sense of disillusionment and frustration is leading Australia down that similar path?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, divide and rule is an old political concept. You know, divide. Divide a a public uh, and rule through the dissipation of the opposition that might otherwise be against you. And uh, and one great exponent of that in Australia was John Howard. Um, I think I said on uh, on Q and A that um, in one regard at least, John Howard's prime ministership was deeply divisive, and that was on Indigenous uh, uh, issues. But uh, but I thought it was it was more than that. If you those of you who remember the waterfront dispute, the violence of the waterfront dispute, and the imagery of um, of uh, masked mercenaries with uh, Alsatian guard dogs uh, preventing workers from turning up to their jobs uh, at the the behest of their employer and uh, a strategy that largely was backed uh, by the Howard government and by John Howard himself and indeed uh, there were people in that government who were behind the scenes advising um, the company involved in the strike on uh, on how far they could go and get away with it, basically. Mm. So, uh, and, and putting Australia into the Iraq war, that was a divisive thing, and it was a war that was based on a lie, just like the Vietnam War was. And so, you know, you, you talk about Australian democracy. Um, we are a country that should be, that should be in this day and age confident to be standing figuratively on its own feet uh, certainly having alliances around the world, uh, including the United States, but still confidently feeling it can stand on its own feet, develop and express its own views, um, and uh, and be its own beacon for the things that we uh, hold dear to ourselves as, as what we should be and what we would like ourselves to be as a nation. and uh, And yet we see a government... Um, which, which uh, is doing more economically uh, with China on the one hand, uh, but looks to America for our strategic safety on the other. Uh, and yet we can't find a middle path to be able to have good relationships with both, where we are a lackey to neither, and where we have the confidence to, to express our own opposition to things that if we feel that, that wrong is being done by either one of those countries. Mm. So if we see uh, China um, uh, enforcing muscle that uh, that is illegal in international law in the South China Sea, uh, we should feel the confidence to express our view about that. Equally, if we see America going into an illegal war a war that is opposed by the United Nations uh, in Iraq and and based on weapons of mass destruction so-called that didn't exist and for which there was no conclusive evidence that they did exist, in Australia, instead of going along hand in glove and, should I say, even cap in hand and putting our soldiers at risk in the front line and our national reputation uh, within our own region at stake, by going along in that war when that war was absolutely not justified. Mm. And it was history repeating itself because we'd done exactly the same thing in the Vietnam War. You know, uh, I, uh, 50 years in journalism and, and seeing history close up and seeing the mistakes of history and then watching as individuals and governments just either turn their back on the lessons of that history or forget them conveniently often and then make the same mistakes again, it's deeply
0: disheartening. Are you optimistic for the future? It sounds that uh, the the level of courage and fortitude that Australia may well need to be able to stand up to these outside forces uh, we may not currently possess, do you think we have the, the wherewithal to find it? Oh,
1: look, you'd, you'd never... I mean, Australia uh, has a huge list of achievements, you know, individually and collectively. And, uh, and I suppose the great frustration about this country is that we know what we're capable of, uh, and we know how often we fall short through mediocrity or lack of courage or lack of conviction. Um, you know, the sort of two steps forward, one step back, and then sometimes even one step forward and two steps back mm. to think that we've come close once or twice um, to a process, to a genuine, um, uh, to tapping a genuine spirit of reconciliation, and then, and then walked away from it again. You know the missed opportunities on that front are deeply disheartening, and it's worse than disheartening. It makes me angry when when I think about how quickly and how irresponsibly Malcolm Turnbull turned his back on the on the the um, the statement from the heart at, at the Uluru statement of the heart. Uh, which really was a very thoughtful and, and compromised roadmap to genuine reconciliation by hundreds of Indigenous leaders meeting from all around Australia. Um, a, a roadmap that could have worked and one day maybe will. I mean, it's rather ironic. We tend to see the states as the kind of intransigence in, in uh, often holding back our national approach to government. Uh, but I think we're seeing we're seeing more positive steps being taken down the road to reconciliation in some of the states than we are nationally and yet we have an indigenous person as a as the indigenous affairs minister representing this government on those issues. Um, I think uh, I think on refugees there had to be a better way of uh, of keeping the integrity of our sovereignty and our borders intact without being as as inhumane, uh, wretchedly inhumane as we have been in the so-called Pacific Solution, there is always a better way, you know? There is always a better way if the motivation is right and it's matched by the effort and by the intelligence.
0: Hear, hear. Well, Kerry, I know we don't have a, a huge amount of time with you today and, there, I mean, there is a, a wealth of topics that we could we could explore more. Um, but to perhaps move things towards a close <laughs> and and perhaps to... To end things on a, a bit of a lighter note, it seems a little it seems a little selfish perhaps to ask for your reflections on one individual interview that interests me when this is a conversation one hopes that many people will enjoy. but this is a writer's festival podcast, and i I know that you like this person too, so I feel it 's a safe enough gamble. How was your experience of questioning John le Carré? Ah.
1: Oh. Fascinating guy, Lecarre. I mean, he knows about the spook world because he was one. Mm. Uh, David Cornwall is his real name. John lecare is his pseudonym. And uh, uh, he, um, I, I mean, I was uh, I was caught by his very early novels. I can remember reading the Spy Who Came in from the Cold, uh, which is, would take you straight back to the sixties, if I remember rightly. Uh, and I read virtually everything, well, I, not just virtually, I've read everything he's written ever since, and I always wanted to do an interview with him because um, he wasn't exactly a screaming radical, he wasn't a communist, uh, but he just, uh, he, he was an intelligent questioner of the world of of, of intelligence and the interrelationship between government and intelligence um, uh, and its its weaknesses and its frailties as well as its, uh, as its raison d'etre. Mm. Um, big brain, big brain, uh, who was a, a font of knowledge from the inside of the intelligence world. And, and the whole thing about the secret world uh, is, to me, uh, that, that the more secret and opaque government is in a country, uh, if that country professes to be a democracy, the, 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 the more active the spookery and the, and the more opaque the the wheels of government are, uh, the weaker the democracy, in my view. Mm. And I think, I think the evidence is in on that. And that's one thing I am concerned about in Australia, is that particularly since September 11 and, uh, and some of those other uh, terrorist attacks that followed, um we have now for 19 years been systematically i i doubt that there has been a year and if so there has barely been a year when when more amendments haven't been made to uh, uh, to our national security laws making them more and more draconian impinging further and further on fundamental rights democratic rights uh and uh, and the the intelligence agencies have been have been growing bigger and bigger. The resources have been getting bigger and bigger, and uh, and it's just the nature of the beast uh, that once once something like that is created, then a lot of their effort is about justifying their existence and building the arguments to expand even further. Mm. It, the secret world makes me very uncomfortable. And uh, and sometimes it suits government to use that secret world as a basis for fear, to strike fear in a society um, and make it feel that it's got to cling to the government it has uh, because there's something scary about the world out there. And the, the thing we're being told we've got to be scared about now is China. It takes us straight back to the, the 50s and 60s when we were told um, that we had to fear the yellow peril. From China. I mean, that became a part of the basis of our fear of uh, the possibility that Vietnam might become a communist state, because it was part of the fall of the dominoes that would end up with Australia's fall. Uh, and uh, and governments use those fears. So uh, I think there should be a. I personally think that there 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 was a royal commission in the past. Uh, when Whitlam came to power, he started a royal commission into the intelligence agencies in Australia, which were deeply compromised at that point and involved in domestic politics, really, um, to some degree, and, uh, and the Royal Commission findings were actually acted on by a Conservative Prime Minister in Malcolm Fraser, and the, the findings of that Royal Commission were quite devastating in some of the things they found against agencies like, uh, like Asia, uh, and it was a Conservative Prime Minister who agreed with that Royal Commission and acted on those things. I think the time is right. For there to be another royal commission, which once again, as openly as possible, reviews the quality and the nature of uh, of intelligence gathering in Australia and internationally on Australia's behalf, mm. we we are. It's, it's part of our sort of fear and hope with the U.S. alliance that that we've got used to being drip-fed intelligence, the so-called Five Eyes intelligence system of uh, Austra- of uh, the United States, Britain. Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, uh, where an intelligence effort, which is largely led by the United States, is drip fed around those five countries, and it's like being on the on the teat, in a way. You you come to rely on this so called privilege, uh, and you've got to ask the question about whether we have given more than we've received in terms of benefits of that uh, of that thing. It sort of ties us to the United States in a way that I think has been at, at times quite unhealthy.
0: I always thought in the back of my head that I wonder what Kerry O'Brien would be like running for office. I feel now that you might just end up getting too angry at your colleagues. <laughs>
1: uh, it's a it's a tough game. It, it, it is a tough game, and there are a lot of worthwhile people in it. You know, I mean, we're we're all pretty much cynical these days about the process. I I've resisted being cynical about the individuals inside it. I, I think the great pity is that. That many well-intentioned people have got so caught up in the machinery of their party and in the processes of their party on issues like factionalism, that um, uh, that you end up with a kind of groupthink, and uh, and a caution creeps in that um, that is more uh, uh, about about um, either protecting uh, your your hold on office or about. Sort of keeping your head down in the hope that office somehow drops on you, that the that your turn will come up in an election. Mm. Uh, if you don't, if you don't make waves, I mean, Labor did set out to make some policy waves at the last election, and they prepared their policies very carefully in advance. They had a lame duck leader trying to sell those policies, and I think it was the leader that was the problem, not the policies. Mm. But as a result of that, Labor has gone back into its shell, and I can tell you for a fact, it is their determination that they will, they will present uh, a small number of policies as their key platforms to win the next election and they will try on most other policies to be a small target. Now, that is no way to prepare yourself for office or to carry a country with you. That is not leadership. Mm. But that is indicative of what has happened with our two major parties and the two-party system. And it's why you're seeing so many independents spring up. The public's onto it. And I think that the two-party system has to respond to that challenge and the people in those two major parties have to respond to that challenge. Or, uh, and it might be a long, slow process, we are just going to see their ongoing decline and we will become less and less predictable in the stability of our country.
0: Do you think that a third party... Mm, how to phrase this?
1: Does a, does a, <laughs> there's a lot of talk of third parties. There's talk... There's talk I, I know people on both uh, who have come from... Both the Labour side and the Liberal side, who talk privately about the possibilities of joining together in a third party, I'm uh, I'm not so much convinced of that. I mean, we had we saw the Democrats. You know, the Democrats was actually formed by um, by Don Ship, who was a Liberal shadow minister. He had been a minister in Liberal governments before Whitlam won election, and then uh, then he was one of Malcolm Fraser's shadow ministers and uh, fraser basically dropped him from the ministry when they came into office he was going to be the health minister and fraser dropped him and chip was so pissed off that, with that that he basically formed his own party hmm. that was less about a matter of principle it's sort all of the birth of the democrats uh than it was about the personal anger and pique and bruised ego and self-interest of one man and don chip a very likable individual he was a he was a very effective minister when he was a minister, and he was a very effective leader of the Democrats. There was a lot to like about Don Ship, but I don't think that his primary motivation in starting the Democrats any- had anything to do with some high-minded principle. Uh, that doesn't mean that I'm reflecting the same intent and motives on those people that I hear talking about trying to form a third party. Uh, but I, I, I think, I mean, let's see if let's see another party spring up by all means that's driven by you know, sensible thought and motivation and that, that that kind of adds something more to the policy debates. Mm. But, uh, but I do think that the driving imperative is for both of those major parties uh, to shake themselves up and actually take a good hard look at themselves and genuinely put their parties through a genuine reform process.
0: I do wonder if uh, we'll see such a thing anytime soon, especially when I suppose the... The closest we have to a third party would be the Greens. Uh, well, it
1: is a th- it is a
0: third. Part- yeah,
1: it is a third party. But they've got but they've got one seat in the lower house, in the in the federal parliament, and they've got a sprinkling of seats here and there, in the states. I think there might be two. Maybe there are more. I'm not sure. Oh, and of course, upper house and senate. But um, I I think that the 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 problem for the Liberal Party is that where they were once a centre right party, they're now very much a party of the right. And Labor Party, which was a party of the centre-left, left, is now um, almost a party of the it's, – it's certainly um, a party that is more centre-right than it is centre-left. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, a kind of – and I'm not talking about the – extra. I think the Liberals have allowed themselves to be captured by the extreme right. Um, and Labor is adrift, it seems to me. No, uh, and then you've got the trade union movement which was very much part of the heart and soul of the labour movement uh, which is savagely in decline um, and they've got a, a huge challenge. They're fighting for their very survival and that's not just about trade union officials worrying about their future. It is about very much about um, a funda- the, the fundamental story of the protection of workers in Australia. I think that it is no uh, coincidence that we're seeing this rise in, in wage fraud uh, all over the countryside. Some of the biggest and uh, and most recognised uh, company brands in Australia have been found guilty of wage fraud, and it is no coincidence that that is coinciding with um, the ongoing weakening of the trade union movement. I mean, most of the benefits that workers enjoy today are benefits that were hard won by trade unions in past decades, and uh, and while I know it's a sport on the conservative side to uh, to kick to kick the union can as much as possible, but the truth is that uh, that if you're really looking at a at a picture uh, of a vibrant, uh, healthy democratic society, I personally believe, and uh, the history of the trade union movement and its successors would uh, would I think support that. That that uh, that genuine trade unions that are genuinely reflecting the the uh, the rights and benefits of their workers uh, should very much be um, a significant part of a healthy democracy.
0: Indeed. Well, Kerry O'Brien, it has been a fascinating, truly fascinating chat with you today. Uh, thank you very much for your time. And hopefully, given that you know we had the 2020 festival cancelled. Uh, who knows what the twenty twenty one landscape is going to look like, but hopefully we can entice you back to Bellingham again uh, sometime in the not too distant future
1: well you're just down the road adam it's entirely possible, yes. but can I just spend thirty seconds uh, having having sounded like you know uh, i've got a miserable view of the world uh, <laughs> i've I've got six children and six grandchildren and uh, and and I see so much hope uh, springing from from younger generations, uh, not just of Australians, but from around the world uh, and, and individuals and, and sources of collective um, inspiration. Uh, I think the deck is stacked against them, the young, uh, and the future of work is a sort of massive uh, um, and worrying puzzle about how that's going to develop uh, as a huge policy issue and challenge for the future. But uh, but I, I think that... Uh, There are a lot of highly educated, highly intelligent, extremely talented and well-motivated young people who are going to make a difference, I'm sure of that.
0: I couldn't agree more, Kerry. Well, thank you again. And indeed, next time you uh, feel like ducking out for bread and milk, just keep on driving a little (laughs) south and we'll cross paths. (laughs) Good on you, Adam. Thanks for that. (laughs) It was a true pleasure getting to speak with Kerry O'Brien here and I'm very appreciative of him granting us the time for a a somewhat longer than usual interview in a perfect world we could have spoken for hours. But now we're heading down the road not taken. Honey and Knives are a five-piece Bellingen band who draw their influences from the worlds of bluegrass, folk, country, jazz, the blues. It's a smorgasbord of sound. We're thrilled to showcase their Robert Frost inspired song here, Two Roads, taken from their second album, Who Are You?
3: go down, but she never would. Soon time passes, soon the time flies and the stars they have faded from her little brown eyes The twists and turns of a journey so far broken, fear and hope and wonder and a few broken hearts Soon time passes soon the time flies and she wakes with a start in the middle of the night cause all she sees is opportunities and all she knows invites it let it go And all she yearns for signs to take a turn she's found out that life's not quite as pretty as it seems Seems Her eyes adjust, her body betrays how she keeps rapes in, or how she grows wise. All paths surely lead to a sentimental sigh. Wayly done the way there ain't no turning back. She's finally started covering her own grassy track. How she keeps rapes in, how she grows wise. If I hear in the now, that'll make it worthwhile. Cause all she sees. Opportunities with all she knows.
0: That was Honey and Knives with Two Roads. They're a local favourite, so next time you see them roll into town, be sure to check them out in person. And now, a rather mysterious read from Melbourne-based author Alex Landragon. His debut novel, Crossings, is an imaginative, evocative blend of history, fantasy, philosophy, and we're very excited to share this extract from the book with you now.
2: On a Monday afternoon in July 1825, I was in the back room of an inn in New Orleans, playing widow whist for pennies with two other boatmen. It was late in the afternoon, and outside a thick summer rain had emptied the streets, with peals of thunder that threatened to crack open the sky itself, a great thunderstorm of the tropics. The clatter of heavy raindrops upon the tin roof was like the applause of an audience in an opera house, making conversation impossible. Throughout the room, glints of droplets trickled through the rusty tin overhead and fell with a thud to the sawdust floor. In the tumult of the rain, the entrance door opened and in walked a man in a dark woollen suit, unsuited to the climes. So soaked through, he looked as if he had just stepped out of a river baptism. I did not recognize him, nor from the looks upon their faces did my companions. He stood for some time in the entrance, accustoming himself to the darkness, rivulets of water trickling from his sleeves and the hem of his coat. He carried in each hand a leather satchel, which appeared heavy and well-traveled, marking him a man of modest means, for a wealthier man would have engaged a porter to carry his luggage, and there would have been more of it. The stranger continued to stand in the open doorway, undaunted by the attention he was attracting, staring out into the empty darkness as if he had just witnessed a spectral apparition. He bore the demeanour, not of the sinner, but of a man long and greatly sinned against. He was thin of body, wore a pencil moustache along his upper lip, and a wispy goatee on his chin. His flaxen hair from under a wide hat was grown long over his collar. Even wet and bedraggled, it was evident that his suit was good, tight-fitting and well-cut, such as is only seen in the port of New Orleans among the scions of the up-river plantations or the well-to-do young Yankees lately settled in the city. Whist being again best played by a party of four, I was gladdened by the sight of a newcomer to square our triangle, I called out in English to invite him to join us, but he remained mutely standing and looking into the darkness, staring down some great secret demon. I tried again in Spanish with the same effect, and a third time in French. This caused him to flinch as if startled from a mesmeric episode. He then asked, in the most perfect French, the kind of French rarely heard in these parts, what game we were playing. We whist, I replied, although we would prefer a game of Boston if he were willing. Without another word, he sat, and we began to play. He played Boston with neither skill nor luck, and gave no indication that he had any interest in winning. He played by rote, more machine than man, paying scant attention to the cards. He had to be constantly prodded and prompted, suggesting that his mind was as distant as his person was near. After the game, as my companions were leaving, he asked them to return his money. He must have lost a dollar or more in a short time, and by way of reply, my two friends laughed, <laughs> judging his request an attempt at humour. Their reaction left him in a state of even greater despondency. When we were alone, I resolved to satisfy my curiosity about the youth and asked if he had just seen a phantom, for he had the countenance of a man so confronted. He assured me that he had seen no such thing. It took but little Pocting for him to begin, tentatively at first, and then assisted by a bottle of rum with gathering confidence, an account of his life, both recent and ancient, of which the following is a summary. The newcomer's name was Jean Francois Fay. That very afternoon, he told me, he'd waded fully clothed into the muddy waters of the Mississippi, with every intention of never returning to shore alive. Once fully submerged, he changed his mind, and after a great struggle, managed to haul himself out of the river, despite the pull of the current and the added burden of his sodden woolen suit, which he had worn to prevent this precise eventuality. Thus, he told me morosely, he had proven himself a coward twice over retreating out of cowardice from committing a coward's act. The young man intrigued me, and I asked him his provenance. Faux was the youngest son of a wealthy, ambitious Bordeaux farmer. I told him I was from Toulon, and he seemed somewhat uplifted by this compatriotic bond. Although his father had envisaged a career in the priesthood for him, as a child Faux had instead developed a love for the paintings adorning the walls of his parish church. His father's disapproval only fanned the flames of his ardor and at the age of 16, against the wishes of the paterfamilias he'd set off for Paris determined to become an artist. Thanks to a letter of introduction penned by an aristocratic family acquaintance, he'd studied under the tutelage of the master anne louis Giraudet de Roussy-Triozant. Feuille, by his own admission, was a devoted and conscientious student but not an especially gifted one, and at the end of his studies he'd spent several fruitless years scrounging an existence in Paris, garnering few commissions of his own. When word of the successes of certain French portraitists in America began to filter back to France, Faye resolved to emigrate. He inherited a modest sum after the death of his father, sold all he possessed, which didn't add up to much, And bought a passage to New Orleans, determined to establish himself in the New World. His emigration did not, however, mark the slightest upturn in his fortunes, if anything, they worsened. He was afflicted, he complained, by a profound timidity that prevented him from making the acquaintances and friendships required to prosper in his trade. To make matters worse, he had lost a good deal of his inheritance, such as it was, playing cards during his passage across the Atlantic. Upon his arrival, he discovered a compatriot, Jean-Joseph Vaudchamp, had arrived from France only a month earlier and set himself up in a studio in the city's French Quarter. Moreover, unlike himself, Vaudchamp had arrived with a benign temperament and substantial capital. He had placed advertisements in the Orleans Gazette, boasting of his renown in the royal houses of Europe, and had furnished and decorated his quarters in the style of the artist's studios of Paris with a divan, vermilion silk-screened wallpaper, ancien régime furnishings, velvet drapery, and on the walls a gilt-framed portrait of a plump young woman, his sister, although the astute vaude hinted to prospective customers that it was, in fact, a noble woman for whom he had suffered an unrequited passion. Foy had, in the several weeks since his arrival, spent almost all that remained of his father's wealth and was now on the verge of ruin. All was lost, he said, including his honour, for even if he had the money to make the return passage to France, it would be as a failure. I'd had occasion in the course of my life as Joubert to become acquainted with many unfortunates who had suffered the most accursed fates. None of them had borne their burdens with such lack of grace. I ventured to remark that perhaps not all was lost, that if he so chose, he might discern silver linings to the clouds that pulled his horizons. No, he continued relentlessly, on the contrary, everything, everything was lost. He was damned, he cried, his head in his hands, cursed and damned and did not wish to live another day. As I listened to the painter's tales of woe, I felt welling up within me a most unexpected combination of feelings that I can only describe as envious contempt. What wonders I might do, I thought, in his circumstances. Endowed as he was, with a young, handsome body, an educated mind, and good standing. As the natural and almost immediate consequence of this sentiment, an idea sprouted that, despite all efforts to banish it, quickly colonized my mind, as if every attempt at suppression merely hastened its triumph. Picture the scene. The two of us alone, except for the innkeeper, wiping glasses with a bored look on his face at the far end of the empty room. The thunderstorm now at an end, a brilliant sunshine poured through the inn's small, solitary window. He was not a ship's captain. He wasn't even a sailor. In fact, he told me he'd been seasick the entire journey across the Atlantic. But I was suddenly seized with a desire for the very thing he wished to throw away. If he cares not for his life, I thought, I shall care for it in his stead. At times the best plans come to us fully fledged, as if bestowed from the heavens. So it was on this occasion, I told Fay all he needed to do to revive his fortunes was to paint a portrait as an advertisement of his powers, which he might subsequently exhibit to attract more customers. It should be a portrait of a remarkable visage, one that would arrest the attention of every passerby with its virtuosity. I offered to commission such a portrait of myself, as I was at the end of my life and wished to have my countenance, such as it was, memorialised. Afterward, He would be welcome to display it in his studio for a time until other commissions were asked of him. At first, he refused my offer. In fact, he evinced the most disagreeable stubbornness. I had to insist upon it several times and cajole him into accepting, which was only further evidence of his foolishness, for my suggestion was plainly as wise as it was generous. Finally, he agreed, although not without a look of doubt upon his face. He suspected me of exploiting him, but was not able to divine exactly how. I gave him my winnings from the card game we had just played, some three or four dollars, then twenty dollars more as a guarantee of my sincerity, and so that he might buy any supplies as were necessary for the agreed purpose. We even fixed the date, on the morrow, and the time, two o'clock in the afternoon. I poured two last glasses of rum, emptying the bottle, as a celebration of our agreement then came the moment of inspiration he raised his glass to his mouth with an avidity that suggested a weakness for liquor i put my hand on his arm to stop it momentarily from lifting any higher the eyes i said leaning forward are the thing render them well and you capture the soul of the man render the mill and you have missed him altogether he nodded his agreement the eyes are at once the most important feature of any face and also the most difficult to paint he said My hand was still on his arm, I felt it lifting upward once more but prevented it from doing so. I asked him if he had a preference for painting eyes of a certain colour over eyes of another colour. Did he prefer to paint blue eyes, for instance, or dark eyes? He thought about this a moment and replied that, in his experience, dark eyes were generally easier to paint than blue or green eyes, for oftentimes they were less variegated and the tint easier to imitate. ''Ah,'' I said, ''then I shall ensure my eyes are brown tomorrow.'' Foy gave a puzzled look and asked me to repeat what i just said. ''In that case, I shall ensure my eyes are brown tomorrow,'' I said, ''to make it easier for you to paint them.'' ''But your eyes are blue,'' he replied. ''They are blue today, but tomorrow they will be brown.'' ''By what magic will they have changed colour from one day to the next?'' ''There's no magic in it,'' I said. In a short time, I can change their colour from blue to brown. This visibly astonished the poor man. Is this some kind of joke at my expense? Not at all. Merely an ability I've possessed from birth. Just as some contortionists have the ability to bend themselves backwards in two, or others can speak in tongues. How is it done? I merely could concentrate my mind for three or four minutes, and the colour is transformed. You do this with your eyes closed. Quite the contrary, it can only be done with my eyes wide open. Can you demonstrate this to me? Of course, I replied. I won't say it is a trifle, but it is no great thing. All that is required is the utmost mental concentration. You must look into my eyes without looking away. Shall we try it now? He nodded vigorously. Very well, I said. Watch very carefully.
0: And thus concludes Season 1 of Right Between the Eyes. I hope you've enjoyed all of the episodes so far. And who knows, if the furies and the fates are kind we may just bring you a second season somewhere down the road but until then our thanks to Kerry O'Brien, Alex Landragon and Honey and Knives for joining us today remember to keep your eyes on the Bellingen Readers and Writers Festival website and Facebook where we have some rather exciting announcements about to be unveiled but until next time go out and read something new and then turn around and read something old again like this copy of the complete Sherlock Holmes I have here. Now, let's, uh, let's see. Adventure 1 A Scandal in Bohemia. To Sherlock Holmes, she is always the woman. I have seldom heard him mention her under any other name. In his eyes, she eclipses and predominates the whole of her sex. It was not that he felt any emotion akin to love for Irene. All emotions. It go. And go all she
3: yearns for is signs to take a turn She's found out that life's not quite as pretty as it seems